When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, Yas here and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at thecoachesnet. Once again, that's at thecoachesnet. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys. You're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A license football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Carl Axon. How are you, Carl? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Honestly, it's going to be a pleasure. And I, th- I think it's going to be a real interesting conversation for me. But before we get to the heart of that, maybe just give a bit of an insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Yes, sure. Uh, right now, I'm working full-time as a football coach. Um, I'm a head coach of one of the best junior elite teams in Norway. Uh, and I got this job in November, uh, right after I finished my PhD. So... I've been in academia for a long time, so with a bachelor's degree in football coaching, master's degree in coaching and psychology, and then I did my PhD on visual perception in elite football, um, which I finished or defended in November 2021. So um, that's my main background, and I've been coaching different age levels for the last nine, ten years. Uh, so my passion is coaching. Uh, my ambitions is in coaching, uh, but I, I wanted to have something, uh, a unique background uh, to make me stand out because the coaching world is so massive. Uh, so I thought maybe a PhD focusing on one particular um, yeah, topic in football would uh, make me an interesting um, coach. Interesting. I, I think you, you make a great point. They just start, you know, I think it's, it, it it is becoming an increasing, increasing more challenging for coaches to kind of separate themselves from one another. So I think finding that little niche, if you like, um, around whatever area it is and creating a specialty for yourself is going to be really key. But, you know, I think it's really interesting that you've gone into that visual perception size. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of explore that a little bit further. And, you know, 
just for maybe those who are not fully aware of what that actually means and looks like, maybe just give us a brief insight. What 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 is visual perception in mm. football, um, let alone elite football? Yeah. So visual perception is everything you talk about when you you're looking at something and you're interacting or you're interpreting what you see. Um, so, but basically, we're talking about scanning or we're talking about uh, when your head is up and you have the ball, uh, what information are you taking in? Are you making use of that visual information? Uh, so if you're bad, if you have if you have bad visual perception in football, then you're not seeing the correct runs. You're not, uh, you're not seeing the player pressing you from behind. Uh, you're, you're making the, uh, the, the execution goes much slower and the decision-making is much slower based on you're not interpreting what you're seeing fast enough. For instance, that's bad visual perception. Great visual perception would be to always be updated in every situation. Uh, and that's where we go into the scanning. So I've been, most of my research articles is on scanning. Um, the number of scans, the frequency of scans, the, the timing of scans, and what you're actually seeing when you're performing a scan, a head scan. And, and I think that's a great point to make is well, just on that, you know, I don't know what it is like overseas, but certainly in the UK and in England in particular, coaches up and down the country at all different levels are always talking about scanning. Scanning, scanning, scanning. But, you know, the, the, the thing that kind of uh, frustrates me sometimes is, okay, well, you're, you're telling the players to scan, but what do you want them to scan for? How do they know mm. when they've done it effectively? Um, mm. And is there times, is there certain times where they need to scan in different, in different, maybe different ways or for different things? Um, mm. So maybe you can give us a bit of, you know, a bit of a guidance around what that looks like, because actually it is something that is obviously going to be needed to be successful in the game at a high level as well. Um, what is a good frequency of scanning? What should be the general kind of considerations that people are making when trying to coach scanning? If, if, if you know, if that is something they're going to try and do. Mm. Uh, that's a multifaceted question. Uh, I would start with saying that uh, yes, you have to be a good scanner to reach the elite level in football. That it's no doubt about that. Uh, but you can still be a good football player with good scanning uh but some great scanners uh you, okay let me let me try to re rephrase it <laughs> so you could be the best scanner in the world but your execution after is not the best so uh but you can compensate by by being a good scanner and have average technique and you can compensate being an average scanner and have great, fantastic decision-making and technique. Uh, but it's a prerequisite to reach a certain level. So we see when we did the Premier League study, for instance, we see that everyone has a scanning frequency uh, above 0 0.3 scans per second before receiving the ball. Everyone has that. So what that means is in the 10 seconds before you receive a pass, you're scanning at least three times away from the ball. At least everyone does that on average. But then the best players, they scan between five, six, four, five, six times in the 10 seconds leading up to receiving the ball. Um, and when I work on the with the best junior players, so up to 19 years old, that's the that's the average number we're 
we're trying to have. Uh, but then we have massive positional differences. So the players playing in the middle, they have to scan much more than the players playing on the sides, for instance, because they are surrounded 360 degrees with pressure from every angle. While if you're playing like David Beckham's role in Manchester United, maybe it's a reference too old for many, but he was always playing out on the wing. So, so the field of vision he had to scan for is so, so little compared to, uh, let's see, Sergio Busquets, who has to have awareness 360 degrees at all times. Um, so the positional difference is huge, um, but everyone needs to have the ability to look away from the ball at the correct moment if you if you want to reach the highest level. So, so let's talk about that because that's it's, it's a really interesting point there in particular. You know, you talk about positional differences and obviously how, you know, based on where you're playing in the game, you're playing it at different angles, essentially. You know, you could be playing 180 inside you, you could be playing uh, 360, you could be playing, you know, 180 in front of you or whatever that looks like. But in terms of how you now coach that, what does that actually look like? Because there's so many different ways, you know, that potentially people are trying to do it. Um, and then, you know, something that has been a real conversation and topic for debate over the last few days in particular is the use of unopposed versus opposed practice and its benefits and direct links to maybe, uh, to, to develop the ability to scan, if you like. Mm. Uh, so if we start with unopposed practices, so if you start with doing just a simple scanning exercise, like you're playing a pass to one player, and then he scans behind him and then another player is moving to the right or the left. And then when the ball is traveling towards him, he scans and he has to yell out left or right. Uh, then you know, although it's opposed, no, unopposed, you know that he's actually scanning for something that he would be scanning for in a match. So in a match, players either scan for teammates, opponents, space. You could include the referee. Uh, but they're scanning for one of those or more of those uh, objects. That, though, how important is it? Because this is something that, you know, uh, that in unopposed practice, you you know, you've given that example there. If it's not in context, um, and by context, it doesn't have to be, in my opinion, it doesn't have to be fully opposed. Mm. Um, but if there's not actual reference points for where these players may actually be, are we not potentially teaching these players bad habits in terms of how to scan or rather uh, teaching them how to scan, but out of context? Therefore, it doesn't necessarily transfer itself into the game context, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you would probably know, I'm very much in the uh, train as you play um, kind of thing, the ecological dynamics. And I'm, maybe we get into it, but I'm not the biggest fan of small rondos. <laughs> so... But um, for me, it's a different, um, if you, for instance, if you're a coach and you tell a player to turn his head a lot in unopposed practices, just when I know you have kids dribbling the ball and you want them to scan while they're dribbling the ball, but they're not scanning for anything. You're just telling them to turn their heads and that becomes a problem because then you're not timing the scan correctly you're not seeing what you're supposed to be see looking after uh, and you don't know if the scanning duration is the correct one. Um, 
what you get when you so my uh, my example then you're sure that the player because you make the pass 10 meters long or 15 meters long then you know that the player only has perhaps one second to do this again and that's that's the kind of situation he will meet in the match and then you tell him to scan for a movement of a player which is also specific to the match uh, and the only no way to know that he if he's um looked uh, found that player seen that player is if he yells out the direction and then he performs an action based on what he see, saw so for instance if he sees that the player moves to the left then he has to adjust his position uh to uh to receive the ball with the furthest foot and then play with his right for instance that would be a very unopposed exercise which i don't do a lot but it would still maintain some of the specifics that you want to uh, scan for so for me if you're just two three mates alone on the pitch and you're playing with the ball that would be a kind of exercise to do um and yeah Phil, so just on that then you said it's not something you would do often what is something that you would do often because presumably that would be under certain conditions and limited conditions in terms of numbers potentially areas that you that you've got to work in in an ideal situation how would you how would you actually coach that scanning piece would it be in an opposed context and to what extent yeah. would it be opposed so i would never do that type of exercise in our team training because for me our team training is so valuable uh so after our warm up we're only working on uh games games if it's small sided games if it's uh positional uh, rondos with direction or uh, mostly it's games against small goals big goals uh zonal we always use a lot of zones to get different uh superiorities uh, out wide centrally in the build up but we're playing games small areas big areas we use different constraints so uh we for, for instance before this game we wanted to uh, be better controlling the space behind our uh, backline our uh, defenders so we wanted the keeper to stand much further out to control the space we wanted the so we played on a pitch that was very small um in um in width yeah. very long so we got much more of those balls and we got to practice for instance so that's the way we train always um putting scanning into this i would uh for me the best way to train scanning is to play seven versus seven eight versus eight no doubt nine versus nine ten versus ten but then it's how you focus on scanning in that game and for me that could be uh, uh coaching while the play is going on like uh asking the player did you see that run uh what what space were you looking for uh or i'm stopping the game i'm asking the player to shut his eyes and i'm asking him to point out where is his left winger where is the striker in this situation uh, are you prepared or i'm stopping the play and i'm asking him did you see that run uh, where was uh, michael moving uh, when he passed the ball so i'm putting an awareness on the scanning and the timing of the scanning and then of course we're using video after uh, with the players from games from training uh, especially looking at the scanning timing 
because how do you ensure that the player is scanning in the same way that he would in a match? Well, the only thing you can do then is to play a match <laughs> and let him experience the same stress, the same uh, spaces, uh, the same opponents, same teammates that he would in a match. Mm. And, I, and I, there's two really key things that come out for me, as you said, that you know, want to kind of go back to the top of what you said. And it's, you wouldn't do those unopposed practices in your game into uh, in your team training because the time is too valuable and it's a conversation again a conversation which i've been having with a lot of coaches recently um certainly when i'm delivering courses and stuff like that for the fa and things like that and one of the things i always say is personally speaking i don't agree with unopposed practice i'm not saying it doesn't have its benefits but the way i the way, the way i kind of uh look at it is unopposed practice is not something they need for me to do in my environment they can go and do that in another environment. Again, not because it doesn't have its benefits, but I don't believe it to be the most impactful way of working. Mm -hmm. Therefore, why would I spend my my valuable time, as you've put it, doing the stuff that's not as impactful as the other stuff that could be impactful? Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I kind of the easiest way to kind of think about it is right. Hundred meters is is the sprint. I, I say forty meters is completed by the unopposed then I've still got 60 meters to go. Whereas if I start with the opposed work, yeah. it might take me longer to complete my 80 meters. But then by the time I finish my 80 meters, I've only got 20 left to go. Mm. Um, so that's the first piece. The second piece you talked there about really having the players reenact the motion of scanning in, in, in game-like context. So recognizing that the timings and the distances and the angles and all those sort of things are going to be quite similar to the game. And, and another another kind of challenge I often see coaches throw, put themselves into is they'll use potentially an unopposed context to make an assessment on a player's ability to do X, Y, or Z. Mm. But then they're going to use that as a medium to assess their ability to do it when they're in an opposed context, if that makes sense. Mm, That's the normal way to do it. That's... Uh... The worst thing I see is um, <laughs> coaches, they go after practice. They had this fantastic passing exercise with the different uh, up, back, through, and they just go off the pitch. Oh, did you see that practice? What a level we're playing at. And then the next game, they, they don't do that once. And then what's the point? S sorry, but okay, your team is fantastic at passing exercise. Okay, then enter a competition with a passing exercise. But but sorry, but that passing lane right up there, that would be closed in the game. Mm. Uh, and the players had to make adjustments based on that. And then they had to scan if he's pressured or not. Um, so uh, for me, uh, for me, it's not about unopposed or opposed. For me, it's more about specificity. Mm. Because for me, uh, training unopposed is unheard of. So for me, it's just what we do when we play opposed. Is it specific enough for the match? So I'm telling my players that what I can do to you, give you is 200 situations every training week with the same intensity at the same place in the pitch that you would meet in the match. Yes. So my right winger will get in that position and he will have to decide which, which action to take 200 times in a week, each week. That's the way we train. So and I believe in a long context, in months after months, that type of training would make you a better player. That's oh. just my 
I wholeheartedly agree. I think the challenge for a lot of people is that in the initial period of that that approach, it could look a lot more messier. Of course, and people don't it's, you know people don't associate yeah. that with them being successful, and I think that's where the challenge comes. You know, I'm, learning I'm, development is never linear, and that yeah. it's never linear. So maybe this takes a lot more time or a bit more time, but learning moves like a it's a wave. Uh, it goes up, it goes down, and then suddenly they're catching it, and then uh, fantastic things can happen. So yeah, hundred percent. Um, just want to take you back a few moments. Obviously, you know, we do, it's something that we we've seen that you posted about recently about the rondos and things like that. I mean, personally, again, similar to yourself, I don't agree with the idea of rondos. It doesn't make sense to me. And you know, again, another conversation I was having recently where I was just. We were just exploring like, why do people use Rondos? Who uses Rondos? What kind of what do they typically look like for those people? And I, I mean, I I can't I can't understand why you would. <laughs> um, I me, can understand why. I mean, I, mean I, I, I get why you would, but I don't understand yeah. knowing that it doesn't occur like that in a game. Mm. It doesn't look like a game. Why would you spend your time on that? Um, yeah, yeah, people yeah. always, you know, people say stuff like, you know, oh, we see all the top clubs doing it as warm ups and things like that. Yeah, but they they're also working with those players four or five times a week, mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, and coming back to your point, my time is too valuable with the team I'm working with. So mm-hmm. how do I make the most out of that time? So just talk to us about, you know, your ideas on the rondo, and you know, we can kind of go from there. Mm. So uh, first of all. I understand why people are doing rondos because uh, it's been extremely popular after this uh, the success of Spain and Barcelona in the early 2000, to the, around 2010, it just exploded. So what happened was that in Norway, you see every youth team, they start each exercise with a 20, 30 minutes rondo. Uh, four versus two, six versus two, five versus two. Um, and then some of them add some neutral players on each side to make it, uh, to try to make it a directional, uh, but it's never inherently directional, but you can, you can, yeah, you can constrain it to be. Um, but uh, so my understanding of a Rondo, so I read a research, what is the definition? And the definition is a training exercise uh, design that encourages a greater number of in-possession players, for instance, three, four, five, or six, to keep possession of the ball against a lesser number of out-of-possession players who would attempt to take the ball from the opponents. That's the definition. So it's no goals in Rondo. So uh, the moment you introduce goals, it's not called a Rondo. Then it's called a small-sided game or something like that. And it's it's not directional either. So uh, if you have direction, like players have to play over that line or dribble across that, then you're talking more about the positional play activity. Or um, So that was my understanding when I read the definition um, uh, of James Warren. He's, uh, he's working in AIK. He did a PhD uh, investigating the Spanish um, football development and especially Rondos. And then you have like uh, these quotes from Johan Cruyff that uh, everything that goes in a match, you can do in a rondo. The competitive aspect, the fighting, what to do in possession, what to do without possession. So you have all these quotes, 
and you have all these videos showing that the Rondo teaches all these 20 principles of the game. Um, and uh, of course, I've been doing Rondos a lot myself because uh, earlier in my coaching, I believe it was a great way. The four versus two Rondo is the one we're talking most about, where you're, um, uh, all the four attacking players are situated on each line and moves uh, to the right or left of that line, and you have two defenders in the middle. Um, and the thing was, I believe that was a great way of teaching, playing to the furthest foot, uh, moving to support, angle, and things like that. And uh, uh, I can't now say that it's not, but you're missing some very, very important thing. And now when I have a doctorate in scanning, then the first thing is there is no scanning in a four versus two rondo. So what you do, if you're playing 20 minutes in the start of an exercise, uh, you're actually performing more passes in that session that is not relevant to the game. In a, you're performing passes in a uh, different way than you would do in the game, uh, more than the passes you would do in a game. So you're actually mislearning uh, the entire sequence of receiving and passing. And that's when it becomes, in my opinion, maybe a bit dangerous. Uh, and we should at least make a discussion. Is it possible to teach those concepts that you can teach in a rondo, but also make it more relevant, more specific to the game? That is my like um, starting point for this discussion. So... Really, the biggest thing I'm taking out from what you said there is because it lacks direction. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Because it lacks the direction at directional aspect, automatically it's gonna it's gonna be ungame like because you're just making passes for the sake of making passes rather than actually identifying right where are we starting, where are we going to, and it, it kind of leads perfectly into you know my idea and the, the belief that I've got is that if if, if if doesn't matter what practice you're doing, if you can't um, rational, rationalize and bring into play the principles of play of mm. the game, then why are you doing it? Mm. Yeah, for me, I, I, the the thread I made on Twitter, I knew it was um, I knew it was going to be controversial, of course, because I have a lot of followers, uh, coaches around the world. Um, so I waited a long time Um but I, I thought I just had to start this debate and look what uh, what happened. And it's important to note that that thread is by no means um, uh, research done by me. It is a it is a problematization of the rondo based on research, based on scientific knowledge. Uh, so uh, so I could do that to every exercise. But uh, but I, my assignment by the PhD committee was. Because I'm, I had this sentence in my PhD. Uh, maybe football coaches should fall out of love with rondos, and then they made this assignment out of it. And I have to answer it in the best of my ability. And uh, my conclusion was uh, that rondo may might not be the best exercise um, to teach football, uh, actually. And when you're talking about yeah, all the best clubs are doing it. All the Spanish fantastic players they developed because of this. Then 
the counter arguments are massive. So, for instance, why do Spanish player becomes become so good scanners and fantastic in tight areas? They start playing three versus three, four versus four when they're six, seven years old. And they train so much in a game. Uh, in Norway, we're not even close. So here we're still doing this individual dribbling uh, slalom uh, exercises. We're doing uh, individual shooting exercises. We're, we're introducing passing, playing from one player to another. In Spain, they just started with concepts, with body position, with playing around, over, through. They're starting with that from the moment they start playing football. So, and the rondo is just a little, small, small part of this. They're actually playing three versus two, four versus four, five versus five, much more than any other European country. That's that's what I have witnessed when I'm talking, observing Spanish training, talk to Spanish coaches. Um, so that's for me is the reason why we have developed a type of Savi, Andres Iniesta and the, the, those players. It's not the four versus two rondo. It's the introduction to the game as early as possible. So let's just explore that a little bit further because you know you're saying it's not the rondo. So what would your um your guidance or advice be to the- Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Those guys that are, who, are, who are headstrong. No, this rondo is helping my players. Mm. This rondo, because, you know, it was some, of the, some of the comments I get back when, I, when, I, when I'm exploring this conversation with people is, no, rondos allow you to, you know, work on your passing, your movement, your teamwork. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. But it's not what it looks like in a game. So really, is it helping or is it being detrimental in the in the long term? I I did one one of the slides in my presentation, which I did not. It's many slides that I didn't include in that uh, Twitter thread. And one of the slides was um, we saw a training Manchester United rondo under Mourinho and Solskjaer. Uh I think it was seven versus two or seven versus three in a circle. And then we saw one of the best attacks from Ajax in the Champions League. Uh, who played this fantastic positional game. And you see the fluidity and the movement and the constant uh, changing of shape and uh, dynamicism. And, and how could you compare? Um, so you're, you're just seeing flat out, you're not training, uh, you're, you're not training the football game. You're, you're training something else. You're standing still and you're playing passes and you're not scanning and you're not turning your body. And so, <laughs> Uh, I would just say that I don't doubt that your players have become better technical uh, with playing rondos, no doubt. Uh, but I would say, could you make your rondo more representative and still develop those players? Uh, or is the rondo too valuable for you? That you, For me, it's just doing some small adjustments to the rondo. Add some line to dribble over add some goals, maybe make the space a little bit bigger because I see a lot of these rondos that are too small. So you're playing all the passes you're playing. Even Manchester City are playing 
longer passes than you would think in a game. Uh, these two, three meters passes are not happening in a game. Um, yeah. But I think it's a, it's a really great point because, you know, but let's go back to what you said earlier. It, you know, as soon as you add the goals in and you add this and that in, it doesn't become a rondo anymore. Mm. So coaches, are you really trying to increase, you know, are you, how, how important is it that you keep the rondo or the, or the potential outcomes that you're going to get from it? And I think what it really kind of get, gets, get, hopefully gets coaches to think about is, Yes, okay, then what you you know, you're you're right, it does have its benefits. But if these benefits are out of context to the game, how actually beneficial is it? And then I'll be teaching them bad habits by doing certain things like that. Um, whereas you know, similar to you, I've you know, I talk about bringing in end zone lines and you know, just the directional aspects to it. Um, if you want to bring in a goal on the end of it or something like that. So, something that I typically try and do now is, um, and yeah, let me go back again, talk about the 7v2 someone came up with that with that point recently and said, yeah, but you're going to do a 7v2 rondo. How long would it last? Like, you know, first of all, how often would you ever see a 7v2 situation in a game? And if you did see it, I'm not saying it's impossible, but if you did see a 7v2 situation in a game, how long would the situation be like that? Mm. Maybe at most one second? Yeah, and that, if you have a 7v2 situation, you're probably not that good at spacing out your teammates. Your position would be wrong, actually. Exactly that. So then, you know, how, how effective is that practice then moving into the game? So, you know, so I think that, that piece is really important. And I think if you're going to use these overloaded and underloaded practices, ask yourself, right, what's the time frame that I'm constraining these players under those conditions? Mm. Um, and what would the likeliness of that be if it was in a game? Mm. Um and, but then beyond that, you know, again, moving forward onto the, into potentially another design of the practice, mm. I typically work with, again, directional play. So it's almost like, here's the rondo or whatever you want, the possession practice. The ball always starts on one end and the objective mm. is simple. We're trying to get the ball up to this. And if we're successful in that, we start again from here. We're mm. Always building up, always building up as an example, mm. um, because that's, that's what happens in the game. <laughs> you're always looking to go forward and you're not, you know, and if you need to come back, you can, but actually it's always with the intention of going forward. Mm. Um, so naturally, you know, it would make sense to me that now you're creating habits that they're likely to want to pick up in, and reenact within the game situation. But mm. even coming back a few, a few minutes ago, you know, you talked there about the idea of giving your players um, near enough 200 repetitions of a scenario where they can challenge themselves and making those decisions rather mm. than just going on a post and making 200 repetitions of an of a technique mm. which i think is a really important point to kind of highlight because a lot of coaches will say well we need technique before we can start solving problems mm. we need tools before we can deal with the deal, deal with the deal with the um you know the screws and nuts and bolts of it i'm thinking yeah you do but also if you understand that it's a screw you can now go and wait and work on the right tool for to you to utilize on the screw as an example. So yeah. I mean, it, it, and the other side of it is is you know if you if you start working on the technique, you're you're now suggesting that there is a one set way of delivering on that technique rather than identifying actually here's the solution. These mm. are the variables which are impacting on my performance, my ability to execute. The technique might not be as black and white as you may think it is yeah and that's for me so 
for instance, we, we play with two wingers who always drifts inside. So we play with two tents in the in the space between the defense and midfield line of the opponent, always. Uh, and what we see, what I see is, okay, we want to play the diagonal pass in there and we want to get those players facing the goal. That's that's dangerous for the opponent. But, uh, and I want my players to, to experience those situations. So my wingers want to experience, are going to, experience those situations 200 times each training week with the same tempo or hopefully increased tempo from what we get in the match. And then it becomes up to him and his creativity and his, because I don't have his technique. I don't have his um, uh, visual perception in that moment. I don't see the affordances that he's doing, uh, seeing. So, in that moment, you see a lot of different behaviors emerging. You see, one one time he could play on the outside, the overlap. One time he would dribble inwards and shoot. Uh, one time he would try a wall pass in centrally. But I'm not. I'm never telling him to do that. I want him to get into those positions by by our team performing our game models like diagonal passing and positioning between lines and things like that. But then it becomes up to him. Uh, that's for me, that is for me development. Uh, his understanding of that situation. His uh, so you're seeing the development. Maybe the first touch is becoming a lit a bit a bit quicker, a bit better. Maybe his uh, decision making is going becoming a bit quicker. Maybe his pass in that situation is becoming a bit quicker. Um, that's for me. Uh, uh, development uh, of players. Yes. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, you you seem quite clear in your idea that you know unopposed practice is probably not the most impactful way of working. Um, in terms of coaches trying to, you know, because this is the other challenge I see often with coaches. You know, when you bring a new idea to them or something that they're not used to seeing or used to implementing themselves they want to know all the rationale they want to know all the evidence they want to know all the literature behind it but mm. often they'll never challenge themselves with those same demands on their existing practices mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> uh, that's that's the, that's the normal way because um it's very, when you believe in something, it's very hard to convince someone otherwise. It's just, uh, it's very, very hard. But uh, I believe maybe that, so coaches who come from academia, uh, maybe the biggest benefit we have, in my opinion, is that we we always think, uh, we we want to dissect everything. So we're, and we're critical to everything we read. We're critical to the scientific evidence. Um, we're not accepting the truth just because that's the way it's been done uh so so that's the way of critical thinking uh which i do a lot which maybe are tiresome for some of my colleagues here but uh, so uh, but i'm not i'm not just starting an exercise with my team without thinking through what is the benefit uh are we learning some of the individual principles the sub principles or the main principles in this exercise uh, are we getting the right intensity are we getting the right affordances if you want to go into the ecological way of thinking i always dissect everything with you um because what we do in training is so valuable for me um and uh, but then 
I never tell my players don't go train with the ball with you and your mate. I, 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 I'm just giving them some examples or some. That's why I've created a lot of scanning exercises where with you can do with one coach, three players unopposed. You can do it two versus two. So I created a lot of scanning exercises because I believe when you're working alone, you can develop some aspects of this. But then the main benefit would always be in the team training as close to the game as possible. That's where the transfer happens. That's where you can see if the player has developed, if the team has developed. For me, you you'd never know if you had a good training week before the game on the Saturday. You never know. You can you can have an idea. Oh, yes, it went well. But maybe the struggle we had during that training week, maybe all the mistakes we did made us ready. And that's what made us learn to the game. So you can never evaluate the training week before the game, in my opinion. No, I think it's spot and I think it's a great way to look at it because the other side of it is as well that they... A lot, a lot of coaches tend to evaluate the, the game week before the game or, or during the game and and then they get frustrated because actually what they delivered prior to the game maybe might not have been delivered in, a, in the most effective uh, of fashion and then they get frustrated because it then doesn't translate itself into the game. So quite often what I see um, in my role as a coach developer where I'm, I'm going out and watching coach and say, yeah, but we did, we did this in training. Yeah, but did you really... Did you really do it in training, or did you just talk about it? Um, did you just not think mention yeah. it? If the players are not making a lot of mistakes during your training week, then you're not developing those players, or you're not forcing them to work in tight enough areas with enough intensity. So I I I love mistakes. I tell my players perform mistakes, but perform mistakes in the right way at the right time. So don't do this stupid mistakes because you're not uh, aware of the situation you haven't uh, seen the situation scan the situation don't do the the sloppy pass mistakes but do the mistakes when you're trying the true ball or you're uh, you're sprinting into press but you may be leaving one opponent behind you so i want a lot of mistakes during the training week and if everything runs perfectly then uh, then they haven't been challenged enough, in my opinion. Definitely. So what, what would you say, you know, what are some of the key considerations you really want coaches to start making around this idea of, A, whether to use a rondo or not, um, B, whether it should be more directed around unopposed or opposed practices within their sessions? Because like I said, you know, earlier, I don't disagree that there is benefits to all these other ways of working. You know, people have been doing it for years and people can make arguments and cases for it until the cows come home. But the the question I always try and encourage coaches to really consider is, is it the most impactful thing that you could be doing? And it doesn't mean that you are not getting benefits. It doesn't mean that it's not working. It doesn't mean it's not helping right now. But even if you're seeing some success from it, mm. are you satisfied with that success? Mm. Or are you searching for more, if that makes sense? Mm. So, I would start by uh, what what does the game look like? So, always start from the game. Always start from the 11 versus 11 match. That's what you want your players 
to develop your skills towards. That's the 11 versus 11 game. And then you can break it down. And of course, what would you like to do during the week? Yes, it's playing 11 versus 11 as much as possible. That would be the absolute best. But then you want maybe players to have more actions. So then you're playing five versus five or six versus six instead. And it's, it's still the game, but the spacing becomes different. Uh, the number of players you have to always adjust uh, to and towards becomes different. But you're still, it's still the same concepts. You're still making the same runs. You're still moving outside or through or over the opponent in an attack. You're still closing passing lanes in defense or pressing or covering. So you're still doing all those individual uh, principles, sub-principles and main principles that we do in a game. But once you move away from that, once you remove the goals, once you remove the direction, the offside rule, and uh, you're down to maybe three versus three, two versus two, then it it becomes, uh, I shouldn't say something else, but you're not working on the 11 versus 11 game principles. And you're not developing the skills inside that context. Uh, but then, so for me, for instance, I, I, I train a lot we're not always uh, able to play 11 versus 11. So, for instance, now we're losing some players who, who are too old, and now we only have 15, 16 players in training. So what I do is I'm not always playing 7 versus 7 because I want it to be more specific than that. So instead, I play um, I put a, an attack from the halfway line to the goal. So the one setup is my back four and the three midfielders in front maybe working with principles in our low block while our other seven players are positioned with two wide players, two inside tens, one striker, two center midfielders. And we're trying to break down a low block. That's how you do it with 14 players. You're making, you're creating the specific situations that he would in match. And then maybe I'm throwing one ball out to the right and I'm telling, okay, create a two versus one or I'm, playing the ball on the other side and then I'm not saying anything and then uh, I ask them to come out in a medium block and so that type of exercise I do a lot because that resembles the game uh, 95% so you're still lacking a layer in the defensive work and you're still lacking the center halves to um, to switch play but it's very 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 similar to the game um, so Two days after, they're experiencing the exact same situation in that game we had yesterday. So they know what to do and they, they already practice it in a higher tempo than we do in a game. So the starting point should always be the game. And then it's important to note that I'm not, I could do a rondo, but I do, for instance, now two days after a match, match day plus two, uh, we have to care about the load of the players. Yeah. So I I could start with a four versus four plus three uh, rondo exercise. I do that sometimes. Then I have one end player there, one end player there, one uh, central midfielder in the middle. But I always include some sort of line. So I split the field into thirds. So the thinking is that I put one center half, for instance, at the one joker at one side and maybe one center half on the other side. And then that center half has to play. And to get a point, he has to break the second line. 
So we have to play through the pressure. And then the same thing applies the other way. So it's still keeping the ball, but the point is to get it from one side to the other by, by creating triangles, by creating spaces and everything. And then the same thing applies the other way. Is that the perfect exercise? No, but it, it uh, um, the fatigue is very little in that type of exercise and the players get a lot of movements and they think it's a lot of actions with the ball and they think it's fun. And the most biggest argument I got when I said I moved into this position, I told uh, uh, the board that I was not doing any rondos, four versus two rondos, never. Then they told me, well, what about the fun? The players love that exercise. Then I tell them, yeah, but the players love even more to play toward goals. They do. They do. Just make that fun. Just make that the new normal. I think, you know, you, everything that you're saying, it just resonates with me really well because people say, oh, yeah, let's do, we do the rondos because the players enjoy it. That's one of the common things that comes out. Yeah, but if they only enjoy that, then maybe you need to look at the rest of your sessions. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think it, it, for me, I've always, I've always looked at uh, one of the key things I've really started doing in the more recent years in particular is, right, what do the players actually enjoy? And really... It's not even what they enjoy. What does it, what engages them? And naturally, whatever engages them, they're going to end up enjoying anyway. And even if they don't enjoy it, as long as they're engaged, something's taking place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing, um, you know, I'm listening to you talk, and, and all I can hear is voices of coaches saying, "Well, why don't we just give it up and let's just play games then?" Perfect. Um, well, that's the thing. So you're going to why? Why do we bother planning sessions? Why don't we just play games? Well, maybe you should try it. <laughs> and see what happens create games by using different constraints yes. because for yes. me the use of constraints will become the new norm in coaching for me it's no doubt uh, the way you use zones the way you regulate the rules of that game uh, it's so impactful and coaches should try it and they should discuss it because I found it to be a fantastic coaching tool that I'm using all the time. So we almost never, let's see, we play five games of five minutes, seven versus seven. Then I maybe introduce a new constraint to each game. I often do that. So in the first game, I could tell none of the defenders are allowed to speak. They're not allowed to say one single word. The attacking team is allowed to speak. So what you see then is uh, the defending team has to scan defensively all the time because they have to adjust their position because there's no one telling them to move to the right or to the left. The attacking team, they they talk more because they're allowed to talk when they have the ball. Uh, and then I maybe switch it. So maybe for the next game, the attacking team is not allowed to speak. So either team who has the ball is not allowed to speak. And again, you see the players scanning more, but you hear the defensive team uh Press, cover, press. They're speaking more because now they're allowed to speak. Um, and I, I I don't advocate doing this all the time because you want the players to be vocal and stuff like that. But that little constraint has enormous impact on how early people are moving into position, how much they're scanning um, and stuff like that. And another thing would be 
Uh, I want my team in the build-up to be controlled. We always play out from the back. We always drop with a lot of players. So we want to create the first superiority from behind. Uh, and one constraint would be at least two touches in our own third. Uh, what that entails is that we don't want any uncontrolled one-touch pass in that area because we're going to we're gonna play out from the back, but we want to do it controlled. And then immediately we see, okay, so we're playing two touches there, three touches there, moving into space. And then we become, and then we uh, progress and then it's up, back, through, one touch. Um, so that's just one example, but you can have like hundreds of different constraints, uh, overload, underload, uh, touch restrictions, uh, everything. Just don't make constraints so that the game becomes unnatural that's so for instance touch limitations should be used sparsely very sparse so i never tell my team uh in an entire game only two touches never uh but for me a fun exercise would be uh, one day after the game we play 11 versus 11 in a very small area and it's only one touch but with four players four jokers so we get uh, we get this game, but it's it's just so fun. It's just okay. We have thirty one touch passes and then a goal. Um, so, so that's for me. You make it fun. You make the game fun. That's uh, one example. Definitely, definitely. Look, Carl, I'm I'm pretty sure we could probably sit here for hours and just explore <laughs> explore some of these uh, concepts and um, just really fight the case of why we should stick with more impactful opposed practices and potentially games as opposed to anything else. Um, but, you know, you, you, you've, you've done a lot of research on this. You've done a lot of, um, you know, reading and you know, on, on, again, being able to justify and rationalise why you do what you do in the way that you do it. And I think it's very clear in the way that you articulate yourself around it as well. Um if you know, I'm, I'm sure there will be a lot of interest in terms of uh, listeners and viewers getting more insight around some of the work that you do. So, you know, if they were interested to do so, where could they do that? So, if you go into my Twitter, you will see my my um, the first thread, the the attached thread. Uh, you, it's a link to my entire PhD. So, if you're really, really a nerd and want to dig into it, then go look into my PhD where I discuss some of this around specificity, around the visual perception, action coupling. Because um, uh, for me, it's all about the perception action coupling that you meet in a game. You cannot remove the action and you cannot remove the perception. Every football action is perceive, decide, execute. Perceive, decide, execute. Mm. Uh, so don't, don't remove anything in that chain. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to refer to any uh, particular author, but I, I like, for me, looking at the constraints-led approach. Uh, there's some fantastic sports book on the constraints-led approach, how you design your practices. Uh, it's derived from nonlinear pedagogy. Uh, so the constraints-led approach is, for me, been an eye-opener. Mm. Um and I think it's uh, going to take over, uh, especially player development, but also uh, first team training more and more. You mm. see play coaches like Thomas Tuchel, for instance, 
he's he's always using different pitch shape uh, shapes different constraints different zones in every every single exercise mm. so many top managers are using this constraints theory a lot uh, in the practical work definitely and just on that can you just uh, share us uh, share with us your twitter handle yeah i think it's uh, oxum football aksum football I'll definitely, what I'll do is I'll, I'll stick that in the notes as well. So guys, can um, anyone that's interested can kind of click on it directly. But um, there you have it, guys. It's Carl Axon, you know, some great, great insight around visual perception. Um, whether you should or you shouldn't be using the Rondo, in, in fact, um, something to consider for yourselves. If it's something that you're, you know, you're, you're currently using um, often. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely got my mind thinking of some questions. You know, you, you've given me some food for thought, and I think it's definitely uh, something that I'm definitely going to refer people back to this conversation because I think there's some there's some thought provoking aspects of what what you said today, and I think more specifically, the the, the biggest message to kind of take away, and I think the message that I've been trying to really drum home for a lot of people recently is, yes, what you're doing might be working, but is mm. it working the best it could be? Mm. What where do you set the bar? So yeah. well for me, for me, I said, right? for, we want to train the best in the world. Uh, so then I cannot, I cannot justify using minutes on something that I know is not uh, the best way to use it. Hundred uh, percent, yeah, hundred percent. Spot on. Well, look, Carl, thank you again for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of positive feedback for this episode, and I, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what people say. But thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me, as Thank you. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.